Welcome to All Good in the Hood, a podcast that celebrates people doing great things in their communities. These are the unsung heroes who have started social enterprises or community initiatives in a hope to make the world a better place. What is it that drives these people? Why is community so important to them? What are the hurdles they're facing along the way? And is what they're doing having a real impact? We'll find out on this episode of All Good in the Hood. Episode 6, Concarapanagiotidis, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Inspired by the struggles of his parents and his own childhood experiences of racism, at age 28, Con founded the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. From humble beginnings, the ASRC today has grown into both a place and a movement. It is the largest independent human rights organisation in Australia and has supported and empowered over 17,000 people seeking asylum in the last 17 years. Con is a fierce advocate for rights of people seeking asylum, refugees and Indigenous Australians. He's also a human rights lawyer, social worker, board member for Children's Ground, philanthropist, masseur and cooking enthusiast. So let's get into it. The first question for Con is, what is the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre? The ACC is a home of hope. It's a place where people seeking refuge, seeking asylum, can come and find a place of welcome, a place of opportunity, a place where they'll actually get helped, a place where people will treat them with dignity and respect. At the heart of it, we're an independent human rights organisation that's never taken a dollar from the federal government. Over 17 years, we've helped 17,000 people. And when you walk into our, our space, there are 40 programs, everything from a hot feed, food for your family for the week, a lawyer to help you with your asylum claim, a teacher to teach you your first words of English, someone to help you find a job, to crisis housing and medical care, uh, 1,300 volunteers, more than 100 wow. staff, all working together to try to protect refugees' human rights and give them the space to thrive. So why is this important to you? Look, I think it's important to me because at the heart of it, it's first of all understanding my own journey, my own story, which is recognising that I'm the, I'm the grandson of refugees. I'm the son of immigrants. I recognise how lucky I am to have just won the lottery of time and place, you know, the birthright lottery, and how easy it could be that the people walking through those doors could be my grandparents or could be my parents. Uh, my parents came in the 60s impoverished as immigrants in search of a better life. The refugees that cross the sea and land today fleeing for their lives are simply seeking safety. Unless we're indigenous to this country, you know, the oldest living um, culture on earth, all of our ancestors or ourselves, we might be the first generation, we share the exact same story. And all our ancestors have the same story of when they first arrived, told they were a burden, told they were a threat, told they'll never integrate, told they'll never contribute. And yet the greatness of this nation is its indigenous culture and history and its multiculturalism. So it's personal to me and and it comes from my heart and I feel it and I believe it. And I live it, and I'm really passionate about it. Tell me about that journey for your parents. What was it like growing up? Yeah. You were in regional Victoria? Yeah, I think it was really tough for my parents. I, you know, my mum my left Greece at 20, my dad at uh, 
26, neither wanted to leave Greece. They both were heartbroken and their parents forced them to because they lived in such poverty. My dad left school at nine. My mum left school at 12. I was the first to go to high school in my family. They never had a fighting chance at the opportunities that me and you have and most people that are listening right now have. They came to Australia. They met kind of like an arranged marriage of sorts. Uh, my Both were country people. So my dad you know, said, let's go and work in the... Um, on the farms, and they were tobacco farmers in a little town called Mount Beauty. The town itself was kind and good to my parents. They you know, respected how hard they worked and how dedicated they were. Tough for me and my sister, like one of two Greek families in a town of basically 1,500 Anglo kids. So childhood was one of, like, you know, racism and, and bullying and, you know, being told to go back to where you came from. So, you know, you set at a very early age an understanding of what it's like not to belong and what it's like not to fit in. And you also learn at a very early stage the significance of family, sacrifice, work ethic, and being proud of where you come from as well. Tell me about the pain and anguish involved with not fitting in as a, as a child. Yeah, I think that was a lot of the making of me. Like, so, you know, between up to 12, which is how old I was before I moved to Melbourne, grew up in Mount Beauty, that racism, you learn at a very early age that your difference is, is, is seen as a threat, as a problem, that you're seen as inferior in some way. Then when I moved to the city, I went to uh, Thornbury High, which at the time, now it's a good school. At the time, it was a rubbish school. <laughs> the Herald Sun voted the ninth worst school in Victoria at the okay. time. Actually, yeah. I remember reading the article. It was, like, it was a terrible school. Okay. And there, suddenly, I was in the majority. Like, it was really ethnically diverse, but that was replaced with now just uh, a huge amount of getting bullied, you know, like, because I was nervous around girls, and I read, and I went to the library. and So then I was basically called faggot for most of the high school, you know, especially the first few years. Okay. And so that, you know, that experience and learning of what it's like to either be a wog or a faggot or, a, or you know, to be bullied and to be seen as, um, as not good enough, as inferior, as worthless in some way, it, it engenders in you a, a both a deep sense of low self-esteem, a, a deep sense of self-loathing and self-hate. But as I got older, uh, what I learned, it was also a gift. It built within me a profound resilience, emotional intelligence, uh, and the ability to kind of navigate and survive through everything. And it really was the making of me. And I suppose moments like that, they either break you or they make you. And I don't mean to be flippant. I just mean you've kind of got two choices. It either just destroys the very essence of you or you find a way um, to rebound through it. So tell me about the moment when you felt like you broke through. Well, I think there was a couple of moments in my life like that. I think at 18, I was at a point of really wishing, uh, you know, uh, I never would have taken my life. I never thought of how to kill myself, but I wanted to die. And I very much absolutely loathed myself, thought of myself as unlovable and worthless. No matter how hard my parents sacrificed and worked and, and gave unconditional love, they themselves had never been raised in a way that they knew how to express that love. They expressed that through, we sacrifice, we work, we give up our dreams. I mean, that's the greatest love, to actually give up everything you hope for, everything that would make you feel worthwhile so your kids can have it. I don't think there's a deeper love than that, actually. But you grow up in a, your own traumatized home and with your own trauma, and I think you um, you just don't want to be here. And I think at that point it was like, but I knew within me um, I had a lot of love and that there was love there that I wanted to give. I just never thought I would ever get it back. I was convinced I would never be in a relationship. I was convinced I would never um, get married. I'd never have kids. I was convinced I'd be alone all my life. But at 18 I made a choice that I would take that love I had in me and go, well, I'm going to go out and give it to others. And hoping, giving that love to others, that maybe um, that's my way of experiencing love and, and, and having love is by being able to sh- give it, show it for others. A love I wish I could feel for myself. Um, that's what I did. I started at a homeless men's shelter. 
And, and I basically spent the next 10 years volunteering in a couple of dozen different charities from working with, you know, male survivors of child abuse to, you know, people working as sex workers to terminally ill kids to young people at risk to people with HIV to people in the psychiatric system. You name it, I did it. And in each of those groups, I saw a little part of me and I was drawn to that. So can you name any specific experience where, you know, you've obviously gone through that childhood mm. um, you know, self-loathing anger. You've made that decision to throw some love out there. Mm. Can you can you tell us a specific story where where it's stuck and and you went, oh, actually, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Actually, oh, oh, look, it really began. It really began with my first volunteer job. I was, you know, at a homeless men's shelter in Carlton. I just started university. Couldn't make a friend at uni. You know, I could literally have been dead and they wouldn't have known, you know, that I hadn't turned up ever again. And there I was at this homeless men's shelter one day a week, um, this drop-in centre. My job was just to keep them in company, play pool, have lunch with them, have a cup of coffee. And here were these men twice my age. They're 18, they're 40, 50, 60. And here were these men taking me in like a long-lost son. And they were giving me a kindness and a f- and, and warmth and welcome that I, that I couldn't find anywhere else, you know, in my life outside of my home. And I'm like, suddenly here, all this stuff that I have in me makes sense. They feel heard by me, seen by me, cared for by me. And suddenly it felt powerful and it felt so incredible. And and from that, you know, I think kindness and compassion is contagious. And I began with that. And then, uh, quite honestly, there are thousands of those little moments. Um, and, and each of those little moments are about going out into spaces, trying to find your own meaning and purpose and trying to do good finding others that actually need that compassion and empathy and seeing the impact and good that you can create. And it's extraordinary in how healing and how empowering it is. Um, I mean, there are other lots of moments. I remember when I was 20 and I got to run sexual assault support groups. I'm 20 years old and I made all these amazing male friends who were all, you know, literally two or three times my age. And, and they'd all been survivors of child abuse. And they had befriended me and invited me to to um, help them run support groups. This is 1992. This is okay. no one's talking about men as survivors of child abuse. I mean, mm. still a taboo subject at a time when we have record rates of mass suicide. Um, and there I was in this space as a 20 year old t- talking to men who were 40, 50, 60, telling me about how I was the first person in 50 years that were telling my father abused me as a child. And I, I spent the last 50 years thinking this is how love is shown to me in the last 50 years engaging you know harming myself or not allowing myself to have intimacy or relationships or you know my family disowning me because they thought I was going to be a perpetrator myself like just you know all these men suffering in silence in sunken places and the key theme in all the work I've ever done is I see people who um, in any moment in time a crisis has got them to the margins whether it's abuse whether it's domestic violence in the home whether it's poverty a loss of a job mental health issues And at that point, instead of us as a community embracing them and caring for them, we've discarded them and then we've labeled them and stereotyped them and we've we've abandoned them. And in each of those moments, I always kept seeing the importance of the healing power of love and compassion and of caring. Uh, And and that's why I write all about this in my book is, is about the importance of this and share all those journeys because I really want people to understand how, how powerful that is, not just for people out there, but how powerful and important that is for ourselves to forgive ourselves, to love ourselves, to value ourselves. What's it like for you to create that space for people and for them to open up for you? What does that do for Con? Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. Like, like I think people often are dishonest about work they do in helping professions around uh, that they the view that um, uh, the view that 
that this sort of stuff is um, just one way. Like I get even more out of it than I give. And what it does for me, um, uh, I, I can think about here at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre the number of times I've, I've talked people out of taking their lives, times I've physically had to stop people from taking their lives. Um, and there's both a, a deep sadness and heartbreak in me that people have, have reached that point and are still stuck in this limbo and uncertainty and this despair. And then there's a profound um, affirmation about, uh, uh, and I don't mean this in some sort of martyrish way or saviour way, I'm not, refugees have in fact saved themselves, they're the most resilient resourceful people you're ever going to meet, but it feels pretty incredible to be part of something where this organisation has saved the lives of thousands of people. And that feels pretty amazing because, yeah, it feels like your, your life actually has purpose and meaning. And I think that stuff matters more and more when we live in such bullshit and shallow times. We live in times where we're encouraged to think of ourselves as just individuals. Most of our relationships and engagements are transactional, lack intimacy, lack purpose, are disposable. You know, you know, mm. we're in a, a, a life where everything is online from from our dating to how we by the things that we like to, you know, how we connect with people. And more and more and more, we're actually feeling more isolated than ever before. Ironically, we have more platforms and more technology for more connected than before. And I think people feel more lonely now than they ever have before. Uh, like, like we just had a 9% rise in the suicide rate in this country. Um, that tells me something is seriously wrong in this country. So, so that's going up. Is the key to solving that, love and compassion, is it that simple? Uh, people often ask me, well, you know, how, it can't be that simple. And I say, well, if, if I'm not a parent yet, but if I was, a, I watched my sister do this with, with her two little children, I would do this the day when I become a father. And I always say, raise your kids with a following. Raise them with emotional intelligence. Raise them with empathy, like to actually see others and to feel for them. Raise them to be kind. Raise them to be resilient. Raise them to have manners. <laughs> and, um, and, and raise them... Um, to just be self-aware and have a work ethic. So if we raise the next generation to have a work ethic, not be afraid to get in there and just and actually work for what they believe in, have empathy, kindness, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and empathy, um, and then within that nurture good resilience, you've got an incredible generation. And I think it is as simple as that sometimes, which is if we all accept that all of us are struggling and doing the very best that we can and that we are not each, we are not a threat to each other or a burden to each other or a problem to each other, unlike our political leaders try to get us to believe. Like last year, I remember they went out, um, Scott Morrison went out last year going, do you understand of your taxes? This is how much is being spent on 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 um, on Centrelink, and he was really trying to. Uh, it was a good example. He was really trying to turn people against um, against the poor. And and what he didn't talk about in that figure is um, he was quoting a figure that included pensioners, the disabled, young people, unemployed people. I think people don't choose to be unemployed. There aren't that many jobs going up there. And this idea that somehow that some of us are worthwhile and worthy, it's like um, our current Prime Minister talks constantly about family values. You can't talk about values unless they apply to all of us. So here he's talking about family values and the importance of families while he locks up almost 100 children on Nauru and separates fathers on manners from their families. Values are the things that we apply to everyone. Things that we think are only to those who deserve it, that's called hypocrisy, selfishness, and self-interest. So it actually is that simple because if we raise all of us to, to see each other in one another and to have empathy and awareness that we're all doing our best and that the, we have far more in common than we have apart, and if we are talking about building an inclusive community and a welcoming community and a fair one for all, you know, that thing of build along the table, not a tougher border or a higher wall, surprise, surprise, society prospers and thrives 
It's in our cruelty and in our individualism that you leave somebody behind, like we see now. People, we, we have for the first time in this country people working full-time that are still living in poverty. It's extraordinary. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued to your take on empathy and resilience. Uh, is there a fine line between, you know, opening yourself up and being so open and empathetic towards someone and taking on those burdens and having enough resilience for yourself to be able to handle that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, like I, I try to grapple with this in my book between um, the importance of empathy and compassion for others, but I write a lot um, in it about the importance of starting with yourself, that unless we have um, both self-care, self-love, empathy, forgiveness, expectations of ourselves in a good way, we're no good to anyone else. And I've struggled with that all my life in this work, and, I, and I'm so vulnerable and honest in my book about it because I really wanted to particularly send a message to men to say, we don't need to be real men, we need to be good and decent men, we need to be open, we, it's okay to be struggling, it's okay to not be okay, it's okay to say no, it's okay to have boundaries, it's okay to ask for help. These are really, it's okay to cry, it's really important we create safe spaces for men to actually talk about this and safe spaces for all of us to actually find that balance. So when I talk about having empathy for others, it starts with empathy for yourself. You know, and a lot of what we do is we carry our own childhood traumas or the traumas that come through ill health or death or grief or relationship breakdowns and those traumas almost become um, toxic in ourselves and they become almost corrosive they become like a poison in us where it starts to redefine us like we're worthless we're unlovable we're, we're stuff up we're, we're never going to find happiness and watch how many people in your life have that soundtrack playing so how do we tell a different story first about ourselves so that when we're giving to others we're not feeling like it's draining us and it's breaking us but rather that it's nurturing us because we ourselves have an emotional wellspring that we can feed others with how does con get rid of that corrosion and that trauma? Like, what are, what are the steps that you take to oh, cleanse yourself and allow yourself oh, to be that open? It's constantly work in progress. I'm 45 now and I'm still working on this stuff. Like, writing this book was a, a great cathartic piece because I basically took all the stuff that had shamed me and I felt, you know, um, bad about and all the stuff that I had held on to. And it's all on paper. So there was something quite profound in letting that go, as in, like, it's all on paper now. It can't really hurt me in the same way anymore. The other thing, sometimes it's sitting there being really blunt and frank with you sometimes just sitting there when I'm sitting there going God you're such a piece of shit God you're such an idiot why have you fucked up again and having to sit there and gently talk myself back out of it going you're actually a good person you're doing the best that you can stop beating yourself up I have that conversation pretty much once a week with myself so we all struggle with that and people find that hard to hear from me sometimes because they're like but look what you're achieving and look what you've done and it's like yeah that all stuff is all real but that stuff also comes from a place of adversity and struggle and pain self-care like looking after a lot of the stuff is making sure I look after myself so putting my physical health as a priority, working a little bit less, um, surrounding myself with people that nurture, nurture me and build me up. Because like when you're out as a public figure, and that's fine, this is part of the price of it, people are constantly trying to tear you down. Like yesterday on Twitter, I, had, I, I, I do not exaggerate, I had a thousand men in a day send me abusive comments. Like So you're constantly just getting saturated with people's dysfunction and anger and they're just misdirecting it people there's a there's an anger that's coming that's a real but what they think is at the cause of it is so displaced and misplaced so you're constantly and then in the work yourself you're seeing both the best of people in my amazing staff and volunteers and the refugees i work with at the asrc but you're also seeing the worst of humanity which is people at breaking point and in crisis and at risk of dying um because of just constant turmoil so oh it's yeah and you just have to you know i always talk about um People create this pressure on us to almost be either really happy or we're really sad. And I kind of think you sit with joy and despair at all times together. And it's almost like allowing yourself to emotionally fluctuate between both because life is like that. Life is messy. 
And it's about building enough emotional resilience to, in the messy times and be surrounded with good people so that you're not, you're not literally drowning in it and getting broken, you know. Let's wind back a bit. When you first started the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, what, what were the goals and the dreams for the centre? It's obviously it's a massive place now, and yeah. you're achieving all these amazing things. What was the initial seed? Oh, look, the, the initial seed was really simple. I happened just to be teaching at a TAFE a group of kids to be welfare workers, like, uh, like the next level down from a social worker in terms of you know, uh, level of qualification. And, and, and these kids had to do a, 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 simply had to do a placement for school one Friday a week, uh, Friday, each Friday uh, uh, for eight weeks, and they went out there and tried to find a placement. No one would take them on for such a short period of time. I had been volunteering for about a year on the side as a social worker, providing counselling, torture and trauma counselling to some young refugees who had been tortured as a result of a nun named Sister Bernadette, who at the Red Cross asked me if I would see a couple of, of young people. And I started to become aware of, here are these young men my age who have been tortured in their country for saying and doing the things that I do every day, like speak out for democracy and human rights. And I found out that people seeking asylum were going hungry. There was nowhere in the heart of Melbourne where people could get access to food. And so I'm teaching these kids, and they come back to me going, no one will take us on placement. I said, well, what about if your placement was us setting up a little food bank in Footscray to provide food? Um, and I really, at that, that was as far as my dream was at that point, which was I hear people are going hungry. I've got these young people that people that have pretty low expectations of because they're all like single parents, newly arrived migrants and refugees at a working class TAFE in the heart you know, of the western suburbs. And I'm like, what about we create this organization together? And they thought I was taking the piss. I'm like, why can't we change the world right now? And I happened just to have a lovely friend named Pablo who was running an organic grocery store called Grasslands. And he had a little shop, 20 square meters, and said, you can have it if you want. And so in eight weeks... After that conversation with my students, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre was born uh, directly across the road from where we're sitting right now. We're now in a 3,000-square-metre shop front, and we started across the road in a 20-square-metre shop front. Wow. That's how it began. And at the time, it was just people are going hungry. We need to provide food. We can do this. How about we do it? So did you just keep it that simple for the first couple of years? Was it just like, right, oh, let's, just, um, so it starts, let's just take it each step as it comes? Or So it started with, you know, often people talk about, you know, um, how did you do this? How did you create this? And I keep always trying to say, and I talk about this in my book, about the importance of just starting. You went just start, start small, start quick, and learn as you go. You'll make lots of mistakes. It's okay. We start with that. Uh, that's a couple of months later. What happens? You've got the Tampa, you know, the government saying, you know, John Howe, we will decide who comes to this country in the moment they come. Country never recovers from that. We have September 11th. Suddenly, we have we have refugees and terrorism conflated, and forever linked together because of the political opportunism of Howard at the time. Um, but at the heart of it, we had people just keep turning up in need. So we find another little space, a couple of doors down, for 100 bucks a week that we can grab. We take that as well, and. Uh, the little women from Timor Leste turn up going, will you teach us English? Some English teachers turn up one day going, we could run English classes, great. People turn up going, I need a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. And something like, we now have a legal program. People just keep turning up. It's like, oh, you need, you need doctors, you need nurses, because no one will treat you. Oh, we'll start a health service. Literally in those first five years, just kept adding program after program after program because there's a person in need, no one's willing to help them. We can do something about it. We're going to get on with it. Can you share some of those stories of, of people that have come here with nothing and done a done a legal program and gone on to be a successful lawyer or a, or a doctor or can uh, look, you share a story? For oh, it? yeah. Look, I think some of the most beautiful things at the moment, we've got, you know, Monash, we've got some really wonderful university partnerships at the moment. And some of the beautiful stuff are like, you know, um, there's, we've got um, at one university, we've got three um, young people all on scholarships at the moment studying to be doctors. And one woman's from, uh, I won't mention the country because I want to identify, but from Africa. And she's like, 
She's like, one day my dream is to go back to my country and to, as a doctor, to run medical clinics for women and children back there. Wow. You know, and she fled herself as for per, being persecuted as a woman. So, you know, we've got we've got, um, and there's, there's three young people at Monash. We've got a couple at La Trobe studying to be um, lawyers. That's the sort of stuff. But also it's just the simple stuff. Like around the corner from where we are now, there's a lovely little African cafe. Um, and, and, you know, um, I was walking by the other day and I'm like, hello, do you remember us? And it's like, and we had helped them a number of years ago to get asylum and now they're running a thriving little small business around the corner. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's like walking through the, you know, the university nearby and seeing a graduation. They come up and go, oh, remember, these are my kids that you had, you know, remember when he helped us 10 years ago. It's beautiful moments and sometimes it's in, a, it's in a small moments like the other night we had our volunteer formation at full house and a woman turned up and she's like do you remember me and at first I had to look at it a couple of times she's like oh okay, it's been about 14 years she goes yes and she goes you remember when you helped me and my husband and I helped them get asylum and now she's a qualified youth worker and she came back because now she's like I want to now help refugees so there's, there's thousands of those little moments often you're so busy just dealing with people that in a survival mode once they're okay you often don't spend as much time as you wish you could to track where they've all gone so it's often you just come across them by luck and by chance but it's lovely when you do and there's so many beautiful success stories like that do you think there's a there's a real disconnection between do you think these stories these success stories mm. are the things that people need to be hearing about when they hear about refugees in this country yes, because yes and no there seems to be like a disconnect between yeah. okay they're seeking asylum yeah. and people not being able to compute the what that are, what, yeah. what value that adds to yeah. this country? It's a mixed bag. It's a yes and no. Like at the moment, we're actually training up 24 young refugees across three states in Australia to be out there as, their own, as leaders in their own community, which is awesome. So we're training them up in, in public speaking, in networking, in advocacy, in policy, you know, all these great stuff that will allow them to be empowered to be out there speaking. You know, it's so important for people with lived experience to speak for themselves and to be speaking in their own communities. And that stuff is incredibly powerful. Um, but within that, I think there's... Um, the challenge also is, on the one hand, yes, you're right, we do need to keep telling those stories, and we try to tell as many as we can. Same the way in which immigrants were accepted, through all the contributions we made, through our culture, through our food, through our hard work, through intermarrying. You know that's how it works. But it's, it's a delicate balance because the hard part is if we're constantly having to sell the narrative of the exceptional refugee or the one giving back, we're actually, on the one hand, sending a good message around these are people who have something to contribute, and that's important. So we need to tell that story, but it has to be just one element of it because otherwise we end up setting up the wrong story, which is, well, those that are exceptional and great, we'll let them stay and they deserve protection. But unless you're exceptional and great, well, you should not be allowed to seek asylum. The, the, the reality is we should protect refugees because that's the moral and right thing to do. That is, people who would otherwise die, saving a life is good. So then this is a life that can be saved. So thus we are doing good. That's the moral logic of it. Um, because no one asks me or you um, how exceptional we are, you know? Like, no one asks us how exceptional. And, and you'll say to people that, you go, what are you doing to earn your right to be here? It's like, I grew here, they flew here. It's like, no, you, you, you just have ancestors that just came a little bit earlier than they did. That's basically it. Unless you're Aboriginal, you basically just came a few years earlier, maybe a couple of decades earlier. That's your claim to fame. So it's, it's so tenuous. And so we've got to find that balance between telling that positive story to combat this negative story but at the heart of it, we've got to talk about a deeper, profound values conversation, which is that the greatness of a nation is how it protects those who are seeking its protection. And no one is asking us to take everyone or protect everyone. In reality, we never have. We've never been asked to. We never will because of our geography and our isolation. But it's simply saying if we can save lives and if we can give safe passage to people and if we can protect people and give these people an opportunity, it is true. You will not find more resilient entrepreneurial resourceful people who've given opportunity 
will contribute and thrive. Just like the suburb we're in right now, Footscray, was entirely revived. It was a shithole 20 years ago. It is, it's thriving now because of Vietnamese refugees and African refugees who have brought this whole suburb back to life. And you just have to walk around Footscray to see that. Yeah, for sure. Tell me about some of the hurdles that you're facing at the moment. I'm, I imagine there's been hurdles weekly, monthly, oh, yearly along the journey, but w- what are some of the fir- hurdles you're the, facing the at the moment? The hurdles are constant. I mean, you've got one, from an, as a CEO, from an organisational point of view, you're running an organisation of massive scale now that continues on principle to take no money from the federal government. So you're, first of all, you're just trying to make sure you can keep the doors open, and that's a constant struggle because um, there are 5,000 people almost that rely on us right now, and we need to make sure that we don't go under. So... And, and, and that's the trade-off of our independence, but I'd rather take that any day. The other real hurdles are just the sheer scale of people in crisis and need and the fact we can't get to everyone. It breaks our hearts that we want to help everyone and we can't. And the reason we can't is, very simply, the government has left nationally 25,000 people in limbo for over six years now, is cutting people off income, cutting people off health care, uh, has taken away most of their legal rights, there are 1,600 people on Manus and Nauru that we're trying to help get to safety and freedom. We are seeing people turning up every day homeless, hungry, destitute, in crisis. Some are suicidal. So the other great challenge is the staff are a breaking point. They're exhausted and overwhelmed by the sheer scale and, and complexity of it. So it's, and every month, literally, the policies keep shifting and changing because this is a system set up deliberately to fail and to break people. And I know this. I, I met with Peter Dutton a couple of months ago for almost an hour with the refugee sector and pleaded with him to work together to find a, a, a compromise, a common ground that was a win-win. That is, let's create a fair, efficient process, but let's not cut people off and leave them on the streets. That doesn't work for you and doesn't work for us. And he honestly didn't care. And what was very clear from finally getting to meeting was he knows what he's doing. This government knows what it's doing. It's very deliberate, which is create a hostile environment where the public doesn't want them, create a social environment where they cannot survive and hope that they either break and go home or that they break and break the law. And it's a zero-sum game for them. They break and go home, great. They break literally and kill themselves, great. They break and break the law, great, because each of them is a victory for them. I know that sounds perverse and almost conspiratorial, but it's actually true. The same reason, you know, the fact we've had 12 people die on Nauru and Manus, none of those are bad news stories for the government. This is like, this is how far we'll go. We're quite comfortable with this, and they are. How do I know this? This is the same government right now goes to court against our partner law firms that we work with to fight against two-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds that are trying to kill themselves or at medical risk of dying and goes before a court of law arguing that that's a risk worth taking. So we have to be asking ourselves as a country, where, where is it written? Where in anyone's values, no matter what Australians think of how people come here, I do not believe there is a single Australian, I don't believe there's one, outside of maybe some of our political people in power, I don't think there's one who actually sits there and thinks that there is anything that can justify the harming of children. So if I strip back all the rhetoric about borders and national security and border protection, I ask people listening, can you fathom a single argument that you're willing to stand by that says these are the circumstances where the deliberate harming of children is acceptable? Children. And I don't know, I've never met an Australian yet that puts their hand up and says, well, I actually think it's okay to abuse children in the following circumstances. Have you ever met anyone like that? No. 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 Now imagine if, if we had someone, if we had someone of political note in our country actually willing to speak in that way. We actually had opposition to these policies. And it's been the bipartisanship that has actually got us here. And that's part of the big bloody problem. 
it's some heavy stuff. We've yeah. got some heavy hurdles that, yeah. um, that, that we're facing as a, as a country and as a nation, and they're, they're, they're really important questions to answer. On the flip side, I want to know, what are the positive, what are the successful things happening out of the ASRC oh, at the moment? Just, just, just tell the listeners yeah, a few. Yeah, there's so many positives. One, uh, 5,000 people every month are, are cared for and supported in one way or another. Put, put on 100,000 meals are made possible through the food bank we run. Amazing. Every day, more than 200 people come for a hot feed. We've rescued with our legal and medical partners 36 kids and their families off Nauru this year. We're lobbying at the, you know, in, in the most senior people in Canberra trying to get major policy change happening at the moment. We're about to open up a, a big new centre next year in Dandenong where we'll be able to provide care and support to even more people seeking asylum. We're, we're able, we're putting hundreds of people into work, employing dozens of people through our social enterprises, have got bet- between us and our partners 1,500 people studying in TAFE in Victoria at the moment in areas of skilled demand, so they're going to be out there able to contribute. Uh, we see that in the thousands and thousands of people who donate, who volunteer, who contribute. Um, a couple of months back, we were low on food and blankets and coats, and I put out a call saying we'll be open on a Sunday morning, and I had 2,000 people turn up, 150 grand worth of food, people that had driven all across Victoria from Ballarat to Bendigo to Castlemaine to Macedon Rangers um, to Danong Rangers. Someone drove from Port Macquarie in New South Wales just to bring donations. Like There is amazing and incredible goodwill out there, and it's just about nurturing and appealing to that. Were you surprised when you started this, the amount of nature and goodwill from the community? Uh, yes and no. Yes, I was, as I never thought we'd get to this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, every week, it was a, the early years, it could have closed its doors every week. And I had to keep thinking, it fails only if I let it fail. Um, so part of me never expected this much kindness and this much goodwill. And I talk so much about that in my book because I want that to be the story that people remember. That is... In the midst of all this darkness, in fact, there's this incredible movement that is built, not just at the ACC, but across this country from you know, rural Australians from refugees to grandmothers for refugees to mums for refugees. There's this incredible grassroots movement of people all working desperately together to provide this welcome. Part of me is not surprised because the success of the ACC is a very simple um, thing behind it, which is see the best in Australians, believe the best in Australians, and believe that most people are decent. That's our business model, you know? And if you take that approach, surprise, surprise, if you appeal to the best in people, what a surprise you usually get the best in people. Rules of attraction. It really is. And if you appeal to the worst in people, what do you get? The worst in people. And so there's incredible hope. We are part of a movement that is helping save the lives of thousands of people. This is a a movement where, look at the kids off Nauru, there's like over 200 charities working together on this. There's over 120,000 people that have signed a petition asking for kids off. There is a groundswell of support in every state, in every country town that actually wants fair, humane treatment of refugees. And so I remain eternally hopeful uh, but you just got to keep fighting there's no other choice you cannot despair you cannot give up um despair and giving up are not an option you've got to keep finding solutions leading with the best of you leading with your passion your energy idealism and doing good when refugees come to this country yeah. are they immediately linked in with you at the asrc or are there refugees out there that are, could be struggling that we don't know about yeah look, very quickly just to separate out so we work with people seeking asylum um, and you've got two groups. You've got refugees. That is people that have already been found to be refugees, assessed by the UNHCR in a refugee camp. Yep. And Australia brings people over. We don't take a lot of people in no. that way, but you know, we're not even in the top 60 based on our wealth um, globally. But we bring people over. Those people have already been assessed, and when they're brought here, they're linked with a social worker that helped finding some work, 
some accommodation and settle. We actually have a good offshore refugee settlement program. Okay. The government's making it tough at the moment. They're making people wait six months to get help finding work, which is kind of ridiculous. But we generally have a good program there. So you are mainly dealing with people We work with people trying to, who have yet to have a chance to prove they're refugees. So they are people who have sought asylum here in Australia. And they are in a process of proving they're refugees. And those people find their way here through from the, from the Department of Immigration, who refers lots and lots of people to cab drivers who pick people up and they say, do you know a place that can help me? To people just by chance or hearing someone speaking their language and going up to them going, I'm a refugee. Can you tell me where I can go? Just people coming every which way to being referred from community groups, from charities and on and on. Is is the ISCC at a place where you're like, we can't grow anymore? Are you just going to keep growing this thing? It's a real, it's what, a real what, challenge. What, what, I don't know. What? I honestly don't know. It's a massive challenge because the realities are we need to be able to have – we need to still be financially sustainable. It's a big challenge to be the size we are now and to find the money to keep this going. So the need is greater than the size of the organization. But our challenge is one about how much bigger can we grow without being at risk of financially not being able to keep the doors going open. So it's a constant tension there. Could we grow more? Yes, we are going to in, in, in Dandenong. But even there, we're trying to be clever about it and go, how about we work at working with our community? So rather than us doing it all, inviting all the other wonderful local organizations to come and co-locate a service of theirs there and create like an integrated sort of um, – hub so we can work together. So we're trying to also use innovation to look at how do we build greater scale because you literally can't keep getting bigger and bigger because there's eventually a financial tipping point that you can't meet and we can't afford to just do everything and then 12 months from now run out of money. Um, And people need to understand that a a traditional charity of this size would have three to five years, if not longer, of funding locked in. We have nothing but what people give us. And so you're constantly having to navigate that. How do you deal with that pressure of being the CEO? And yeah, yeah. I think that, look, I think all CEOs know that leadership is a lonely space. Um, but at the same time, it's a place of incredible privilege and opportunity. You get to be in charge. You get to lead. You get to have your vision actualized. You get to, you know, bring out the best in people. But it's also an incredibly lonely place because the buck stops with you at the end of the day. And so you feel a pressure. You feel a pressure for the 5,000 people who rely on us. I feel a pressure for the more than 100 staff that rely on us for their jobs, for the jobs that they need to put food on the table for their families. Um, you feel that pressure to not let down the broader community, the expectations that they have around what we should do. You feel that pressure from refugees um, in terms of trying to help as many as we can. It's enormous and it wears you down constantly. But this is where your resilience and your perspective and recognising how lucky you are to do this work has to also come into it and ground you. How do you stay motivated, Con? Like, how do you get out of bed every morning and bounce out? I think it's just necessity. I think it's just necessity. Like, it's like there are lots of days you don't want to come. You know, honestly, you just feel so exhausted and just run down by it. Like, it's just relentless. It's like it's been literally 70 hours a week for 17 years. It's just, it's just you feel totally emotionally burnt out at times. And you, you, you replenish yourself by going back to why are we here? What is our mission? You know, it's to protect refugees. It's to support refugees. It's to save lives. It's to, you know, change attitudes. It's to create a place of welcome. And so you know this is a purpose bigger than me, and that makes the sacrifice worth it. And part of its necessity of the need to just, you just have to imagine if we weren't here, how much worse it would be. And you've got to sometimes be that pragmatic and just kind of ground yourself and kind of, sometimes you've got to just kind of suck it up and, and, and push on. You really just have to sometimes. Do you feel in a way you're paying homage to your parents? Uh, oh, very much so. Paying, everything they've been through. Oh, very much um, The so. sacrifices they oh, made. Is there, is there something deep in there that Oh, you... there is. I mean, there is. Like, my dad worked from the age of 9 to 61 and then was dead at 63 from a heart attack. So he never got a chance to have leisure, pleasure, 
uh, a chance to properly retire and enjoy the fruits of all of his hard work. Um, like for me and for my sister, who's an incredible, you know, passionate human rights and criminal barrister, for both of us, it's um, we are very much driven by making that legacy count and, and living that legacy. They didn't see, you know, and I think um, I, I get con continuously troubled by a growing culture of, of entitlement and expectation that people have and the importance of actually not being afraid to, uh, the importance of honouring those who sacrifice to give you this privilege. The privilege, I'm so privileged and I need to always remember that and not feel like I'm a victim in all of this and not lose perspective or feel sorry for myself because I'm blessed. I get to do what I love. I have freedom. I have power. I have the chance to lead on something I care about. I'm just pretty lucky. And yeah, of course, there are personal sacrifices and costs to it, but it's still worth it in, in the long term. Just to finish up, yeah. if there's someone out there listening that's mm. been through tough times, mm. been struggling, but there's a passion inside of them mm. that they need yeah. to make a social change, a yeah. social movement, yeah. what is the one message you'd tell them? I think the one message is just, is just roll up your sleeves and just start. And, I, and what I mean by that, if you're, you're battling, you're trying to find a spot to belong and connect, whatever that passion is, Find the place closest to you where you can start living that passion. Get in touch with them and go, I'd love to come and volunteer, whether it's an afternoon, a day, a night, depending on whatever the place is, and just get started. Connect to that passion. The worst thing is to feel despair and frustration, but then not be doing anything about it because all that ends up happening is that just ends up kind of going, like be kind of locking in and you just you feel kind of suffocated by it. But the power of just going, you know what, I'm just going to get in there and have a crack. Just start. Just get out there and start volunteering your time and energy. And if you can't find what you're looking for out there, get a few other mates together that maybe feel the same way. Set a group up. Start a space. Find you know anywhere. Just begin somewhere. All of us can do anything. And in my book, I give, I literally give a hundred different examples. I think of practical things people can do tomorrow in a community. And I did that because I wanted people to, to know you literally can start anywhere and there are thousands of things in your local community where you can get involved in and you just need to take that first step. It doesn't matter if it's, it doesn't need to be the last step. You have to have figured out step two, three and four, but just step one, which is I'm going to now be part of the solution and I'm going to take whatever I think I've got to offer and I'm going to offer it to a group or community or start something and just start. And if, if there's some people out there that don't want to start their own things, yep. but they want to get involved with the ASRC, yeah. what, what, what are avenues? Well, the ASRC, up? you know, like right now, and we do this four times a year, we recruit for volunteers. So we're rec recruiting at the moment for like 25 roles, but, um, but I'm not sure when this podcast will, will go to air. So there'll be there'll, every, four times a year, you go to ASRC.org.au, and four times a year we recruit for volunteers. And there are opportunities, hundreds, to take on hundreds of people every year. Four times a year we have volunteer information nights. So if you, if you follow us on Facebook um, and if you check out our website every couple of months, you'll see opportunities come up to come both to volunteer nights and to apply for volunteer jobs. Well, Con, you're an amazing human being. You've got a heart like a lion. I, um, I've learned so much from just sitting here with you today. And what you're achieving with this place is nothing short of phenomenal. And I, all the power to you, mate. I know you're doing this as an independent thing with no government funding. So all the power to you, my Thank brother. You. And, Thanks so uh, much for having me. Thanks, really appreciate it. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Thank you. So there you have it. An incredibly driven and passionate individual who's striving for a better world. I hope you found this episode both insightful, enlightening, and above all, inspiring. My true hope for these podcasts is to ignite a spark in people listening. It's never too late to get involved in community initiatives, or even create your own movement for social change. I also want this podcast to show people that if you engage and connect with your community, it can provide your life with great purpose. If you know of a community initiative creating positive ways in your neighbourhood, 
We would absolutely love to hear from you. You can contact us through the All Good in the Hood Facebook page or through our website. Also, if you liked what you heard today, we would love you to extend your generosity and share All Good in the Hood on your social media pages. There's just so many great things happening in our communities and I want to spread the word far and wide. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Tim Solly and keep your eyes peeled for the next episode of All Good in the Hood.